So we're gonna we started to see if we can find the connection between today's parsha, which is Miketz Shlishi, with the festival of Hanukkah. So I started to say today we actually are starting to see the first step of the miracle, which fits in with Hanukkah, with the miracle of Hanukkah, because uh, of course we see when you read through the whole the whole story, you see like God's hand was in all of this. Uh, even though, you know, technically we're all responsible for what we do. So the brothers, they decided to sell Joseph, and um, so they're responsible for what they did. But yet God orchestrates everything, and God has a plan, because God wanted Joseph to become the uh, viceroy in Egypt, and then later on he ended up feeding his family plus the whole world. So that was actually God's plan. And God orchestrated all this. But when uh, Joseph says to his, Joseph says to Pharaoh, after he was able to resolve the dreams of the, of the butler and the baker, and then he is brought to Pharaoh and he resolves Pharaoh's dream. But not only does Joseph resolve Pharaoh's dream, which is also an important lesson, but he actually makes a suggestion. Now nobody asked Yosef for any suggestions. The, he was only asked to come and resolve the dreams. And he did, he did so fine. But then Yosef goes on and makes a suggestion, which is also a lesson to us that when, whenever we have an opportunity to act, we should act. We should, we, if we can better, if we are able to change things around, which actually also coincides with the beginning of the Tanya, which we just started learning. One of the things that the Rebbe writes at the beginning of the Tanya, he says that, um, you know, he's writing the Tanya so that everybody can find the answers that they're looking for over there. But then he says, sometimes some people find it too difficult, the Tanya. They don't understand. So then he's asking of the uh, people who are more learned that they should share with their wisdom with the others to make to help out the other ones to understand so that they can uh, see what to do from the Tanya and uh, and he, he says some pretty harsh words over there there's sometimes people will have a tendency they will want to act in humility like uh, trying to say oh I don't know I you know what do I know something like that and he says that that's something we read in from the Talmud he quotes over there that uh, on a verse that it says if you are able to teach and you can share what you know with others and you don't, that's committed, that's considered a a, a, a sin. Matter of fact, there's two sins over there. Uh, this I heard from the Rebbe himself also out of Fabrengan. I once heard the Rebbe say um, there's two sins. There's one time you have people that are not fit to, to be instructing halacha, to teach laws. And they jump and teach laws. That's, that, that can do a lot of damage because they teach the wrong halacha. That's one thing. And then you have sometimes people that are fit to teach halacha, but they don't teach halacha. And that is also... But it's worse. Which one of the two is worse, you would think? I'm teaching the wrong. No, well, so in the Gemara it says that one who knows halacha doesn't teach it is actually even more serious. It seems like from the verse there would be a more serious offense. So... People who can make a difference in other people's lives by teaching or same thing in any matter are obligated to do so. They shouldn't just sit and say, you know, okay, I'm not going to. I'm just, uh, you know, I'm going to mind my own business. Which, by the way, I really told her this is a, 
I said in the morning over a few days ago, um, uh, a beautiful metaphor that the Rebbe gave that, um, you know, a lot of times we know um, people feel uh, intimidated by, you know, suggesting to other people what to do or, you know, like we have a mentality of, you know, mind your own business, you know, and don't tell me what to do. You know, everybody says, you know, if you're not, your children tell you and, you know, (laughs) they tell you, you know, nobody likes you to tell them what to do, they say. And so the same thing is also sometimes applicable if you can help somebody else, let's say, in Yiddishkeit or something like that. You know, they tell you, you know, why don't you do your Yiddishkeit what you want? Why are you telling me? I mean, who are you to tell me? And, like, mind your own business, you know, just do what you want and let me do what I want. And the Reverend brings a very interesting metaphor. He says that sometimes, you know, a person is very uh, deep, in a deep sleep. And he's having very, very pleasant dreams. And he just loves it. You know, he's in La La Land. And then, unfortunately, there's a fire that breaks out. And you're going to go wake him up. And you start waking him up. He says, no, don't wake me up. I want to sleep because I'm just enjoying my pleasant dreams. And I just feel perfect. So good. I don't want to wake him up. Now, of course, if you wake him up, he may not want to, but you force him out and you wake him up. Then when he gets out, and then later on, he'll thank you endlessly for helping him get out of the fire and saving his life. Even though at the time that he was sleeping, he didn't realize that, and at the time he didn't want to be woken. So he may have told you, mind your own business, don't bother me and let me alone, but he really, you saved his life. Same thing is with Yiddishkeit, the Rebbe says, you know, there's a fire, fire of assimilation, of ignorance, and all kinds of stuff in there. And what happens is, if you uh, bother people enough, and you... Uh, Hello, hello, hi, hi, Chagit. So, if you if you if you bother people enough, and uh, you know, at the end they'll tell you big thank you once they come to the realization uh, that you know you you bothered them. Maybe they didn't want you to at the time, but then later on when they feel that their lives were saved, they'll, they'll thank you endlessly. So while we hesitate sometimes to go ahead and tell somebody what to do or nudge him what to do or, or you know, same thing you can even say, you know, you, know, you have to discipline sometimes your children, you have to discipline and they don't want to, but you have to push them and encourage them. And then later on, they're thankful to you for pushing them because you helped them, you know, reach, you know, uh, the, the point where they, where they belong. So, the point here is that we have like thousands of thousands of people who have come close to Yiddishkeit. And maybe they, in the beginning, they didn't not, maybe they didn't really know it in the beginning, but now they thank, they're thankful to the people that, that pushed them, that the people that, you know, encouraged them to, to, you know, to find their, their Yiddishkeit, to, to, to help them in their journey. You know? so, so I want to say about Yosef, that Yosef took the opportunity, so he resolved the, the dream for the, so he told them about the, 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 the seven hunger years, the seven the years, satisfying years, he told them about the dreams, and he resolved it, but he wasn't satisfied just telling him what it means, but he also came up with a suggestion. He also came up. So he says to the king, because he knew, why would God tell this to Pharaoh? Why, why does he tell it to him? And God doesn't tell everything that he's going to do. If there's going to be a famine, there's going to be a problem, 
Okay, so it'll happen, it'll happen, then they'll find out. Why is God giving him heads up? Why is Hashem telling it to Pharaoh, giving him the dreams? It must mean Hashem wants him to know about it. And it also means that Hashem wanted to come through a way that Yosef will be saved and become, be the one that's interpreting. So what, is the, what does Yosef say? Yosef say the fact that a God told you about it, that means that I have to do something about it. So he gives him a suggestion. And in the last, yesterday, he gives him a suggestion. He says, why don't you, you know, basically as we know today, you know, you save up for a rainy day. So when you're going to have the seven years of plenty, you're going to be old as food. Don't just eat it all up. When you're making the money, don't just consume it all. Put some away. So for a day that you won't be doing so well, you'll have something to live off. So he was telling them, so Yosef suggested that you should, you know, save up the food. Don't get, don't get rid of the food. Don't eat it all up. Just put away, and then you'll uh, stay for the other years. So that's what they did. So he says, but he goes on, he articulates a plan. He has a whole full plan. He articulates, he tells them the plan is you should hire somebody, he should go store the food and keep them and make sure and under Pharaoh and each in each community they should carry, they should watch their own food. That was his suggestion. Now, I don't think that Yosef had himself in mind. You know, unlike we read in the Megillah, we read about uh, Haman, when the king asks him, "Who? What should we do to somebody who you wish to honor?" So right away he thinks, oh, "Who does the king want to honor? It must be me." So he skips up a whole, a whole thing that what he would like to be honored with. But in this case, Yosef just took the opportunity to help the king, and knowing that he has an opportunity to advise him, so he also gave his advice. So in today's parsha, we read the beginning of the miracles. That's why I connected with Hanukkah. So it says right in the beginning of the miracle, it says, Paru says to Yosef, he says, look, he says, if God told you all this, because, ah, you know, he says, since God told you, he didn't even doubt for a minute that his interpretation was correct, that the way he interpreted the dream was correct. But he says, since you are the one that was told by God, you had the wisdom to figure this out, that this is going to happen. So he says, there is nobody else as you. And he goes and he appoints him to be over his house. He's going to take care of everything. So here we see the first miracle of Yosef. I mean, while he was saved from prison, he was brought to the king, he interprets. But now today, in today's in Shlishi, we read actually how Paro removes his signet ring, he gives it to Yosef, he tells him, you're going to be in charge, he gives him the second chariot, the second command, that drives along with his, and also, we read about uh, Yosef marrying the daughter of Potiphar, and having his two sons, uh, Ephraim and Menashe, uh, Menashe and Ephraim, and as we'll read later on, that Menashe and Ephraim actually became the two tribes later on. And th- this whole concept of to see how it is specifically Joseph who was in captivity, he married into a, a non-Jewish family. I mean, um, suppose that they, whatever the level of conversion applied then, applied to that time, it was not before the Torah was given. But still, you know, to join family, Yosef was... Uh, 
he was a busy person with the um, all the responsibilities. He was running the government and assuming that running the government and all the things he didn't have all the time that he would like to reflect and meditate on, on God and other things. But yet he has the two the two sons over there and they were not only no less than anybody else, but they became actually the two um, the two tribes. They, they split the tribe of Yosef and they became to Menashe and Ephraim became and that, that was taken away actually from Ruvain because the two tribes were supposed to be Ruvain's and they ended up being Yosef's. Um, so, again, what we see from this parashat, first of all, we see the miracles start to take place, but we also see the reward that um, it is despite and or because of the struggles and the challenge that Yosef had to face he was able to do even better and uh, have his two sons, even though all the tribes of Israel were directly sons of Yaakov. These were already grandchildren. These were Yosef's sons. And yet they were raised up to the level as one of the sons, so they're no longer like grandsons. They're actually like the sons, which also connects with the, with the miracle of Hanukkah because uh, the miracle of Hanukkah as if you read a little bit, we have a little bit of the story in the uh, in the uh, prayer that we say in benching and davening. We have Alanisim describes. We do Danerat Halalu, which we do when we light the uh, the candles. There's also Megillat Antiochus. There is a little bit of description over there. We have there's a book called written by Josephus. I'm not sure Josephus, Josephus Plavius, uh, and uh, there's um, there's various different. Uh, attitudes, you know, traditionally, whether everything that he said was authentic, that is is it exactly... He was a non-Jew. He converted, perhaps. They don't know exactly. There's various different, yeah. He he could have been been forced, but a lot of the history that we have in those days is based on his writings. I mean, that was the... I don't think it was Christianity then, during Greek time. It was was paganism there, yeah. Uh, but one of the uh, things that you read, but he he does have the the story of Hanukkah over there, and just to, just so that we, that we realize that over there it wasn't like um, uh, easy. Uh, it wasn't a free ride. It was it was a very difficult time, even during the miracle. I mean, the, this was during the Second Temple, as opposed to the. Um, uh, miracle of uh, of the uh, Purim. Purim took place in between the first and the second temple. That was the time of the miracle of, of, of Purim. But Hanukkah took place during the second temple. Second temple stood for 420 years. Uh, this was about 220 years after the temple was up. This, because the Rambam writes, it was another 200 years after the Hanukkah, after the miracle, the, 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 the Beit HaMikdash went back for another 200 years. Which means, I mean, they had the structure for 220 years, but it means they fixed it, they improved it. There was Herod, King Herod, who did a lot of the improvements over there. And, and he himself was not a good person, the King Herod, even though, I mean, he followed the Hashemunayim, and he, he tried to claim uh, lineage to the Hashemunayim. He, he wanted to marry one of the leftover daughters, and, you know, but so... The point what I was going to say is it wasn't such a freedom 
like when the Jews were first in Israel, when they were totally free, like after they left Egypt and they went, conquered Israel, and they were totally people on their own. It was, um, the Greeks were still there, and they, even though they had a certain level of the independence, but they weren't like fully independent. But the point what I'm saying is, so, it was challenging times, and there was a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of unfortunately, a lot of people died, and a lot of people violence. were, a lot of violence, very violent, and yet, yet, the, in the, in whole, the, we saw that the spirit and the light and the uh, holiness was what was victorious over the other side. So the Hashemunayim, even though they were few against the many, and they were the weak against the mighty, and yet it's not um, it's not the uh, the physical might, but it's La Hashem Hayishua Ela Berecha Ve'Ela Basusim Anachnu B'Shem Hashem Alokinu Naskir. But the point here is Yosef was a Mitzrayim over here too. So. To a certain extent, we were in the Beis Hamikdash, and we were free. We had our own government at the time that was running it, but still, wasn't completely free. And yet, sometimes, in the darkness of our exile, when things are dark, and then you see a light that's very encouraging. So it may not be a full-blown uh, liberation or freedom or a geula, like totally, but it's actually inside of the. Um, difficulties still we see God's hand. That was the miracle of, of 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 Hanukkah, and the miracle of Hanukkah was such that Hashem showed us that the um, the most important thing is the spirit, and the most important thing is if you have God's help on your side, then numbers might doesn't matter. You can still uh, be victorious as long as Hashem is on your side. So it was interesting and. Not sure. I mentioned maybe mentioned this in the morning, but it's interesting to see. Uh, the point is that um, um, what happened is why do we light the menorah? Everybody will tell you why do we light the candles for eight days? Is because all the oil was defiled. So what what happened? What what happened? So the oil was defiled. So they couldn't do the mitzvah of, of lighting the menorah. It seems like right, and um, it took eight days for them to go ahead and press the olives again so they can have fresh olive oils. That to go a special process. It wasn't so easy to get olives and to do it. it. They needed to get, it took eight days for them to do this and miracle happened. They had a little jug and it lasted for eight days. Now God can do various different kinds of miracles, right? I mean, God could have made a miracle. They found a bigger jug, right? <laughs> that would last for eight days. Instead of having a little light, you know, they could make another miracle, right? That's one thing. And, and the other thing is, the actual halacha is that if you don't have any other oil in the Beit HaMikdash, only defiled oil. Defiled oil, what does it mean, defiled oil? What does clean oil mean versus defiled oil? We're not talking about uh, any physical. We're talking about spiritual. What is defiled oil? Defiled oil means if people who are not clean, or the Gentiles in this case, if they touch the oil, uh, that oil gets the status of not clean oil. You can't use it lachatchila. But what happens in a situation when there is no oil available? It's just, there's no no oil available. What do we do then? What do we do? So we're not supposed to waste of lighting the menorah. We're going to light the menorah, so it's not clear. So it's going to be other oil. So that's that's okay. It's okay. Halachically, it's okay. So then the question is: so, so first of all, the question is. God could, God could have done various different miracles. And also the question is, uh, 
Um, they didn't even need a miracle altogether. They didn't need a miracle. They could have lit the oil, you know, with whatever they had. Because they did have, it seemed like they had plenty of oil. They didn't have clean oil. Clean oil, they only had one little jug. But other oil was available to them, right? So why did we even need a miracle, you know, to, 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 to light the menorah? If you don't have clean oil, you use whatever you have. So it seems like we know that God doesn't just do miracles in vain, so we didn't even need the miracle, really. Or, the other way of saying it is, God could have made a miracle, given them a lot of oil. But let's look on the other hand. When it, it says that when the uh, Greeks, they went into, it says they defiled all the oils. They defiled them. Now, why did they defile them? If they didn't want the Yidden to, to light the menorah, they could have poured out the oil. They could have broken their jugs and poured out the oil. So it seems like they defiled the oil. But one little jug they missed. That stayed clean. But they defiled the oil. So, so what's the idea? The idea is uh, they didn't have objection. They didn't have objection maybe... The Greek were, were, were people, they were intelligent people, they had a philosophy, they, had a, they were advanced in the time, they had various different, they weren't like backwards people. They actually, they were considered to be very advanced. And it was actually because of that, that they had a problem with the Jewish law. Because the Jewish law is more than just intellect. It's not just something that you understand. It's built on faith, it's built on devotion to God. It's built on pure... Like Amuna, on trust in Hashem and trust and believe in God. That's what the it's it's built on. In addition to also understanding it logically. So this whole idea of pure and not pure is is a spiritual. It doesn't it doesn't manifest itself in anything in the in the oil itself. Physically you can't see anything. So principally they were objecting to not the logical mitzvah serving God and doing things like that. That didn't bother them. They they didn't like the idea that oil has to be pure, which means that you have to put away your own intellect or your own emotions. you got to just believe in God and serve Hashem, be devoted like that, even though there's no rationale to it. That purity, to them, if you light the menorah, it's a fire. Pure or not pure oil, you get the same fire. What difference does it make? So to them, logically, it didn't make sense to have to have an oil that is clean, because the, the, you can't see it, it doesn't apply anything, it doesn't do anything. So, they objected mitzvahs that the Jewish people did to commemorate, to celebrate, to do things they were okay with, but then those mitzvahs that didn't have an rationale, didn't have an explanation, those was, those, they, didn't, they, didn't, they didn't buy into it, and they didn't want the Jewish people to observe, because this caused the Jewish people to stay away beyond reason from their religion, from their culture, because it wasn't according to Seichel, it wasn't according to the intellect, it was just a devotion to a superior being, to to superpower, to Hashem. And that's what they objected to. So, they didn't want to pour out the oil, because they didn't have an objection. You want to light the menorah, menorah? Physical light? Yeah, you know, it's going to shine, it's going to make physical light? That's fine, go ahead and do it. Why have this story? So they defiled it. And they said, no, no, we want you to light it, but we want you to light it with not clean oil, because it's, 
they're going to make the point that there has nothing to do with spirituality. It has nothing to do with anything beyond it. It's just, everything is just physical. Light in the menorah, you'll get the light, and that's it. Forget about being spiritual, being pure, being uh, not defiled. Forget about that. So that's why God Dafka specifically made the miracle. Yes, you can light the menorah, maybe the oil is not clean. But then they would be getting their way. Then it means you would be lighting the menorah in the Beis Amigdash with very physical and not spiritual light, which was the whole concept, what they were trying to point. They wanted you, they wanted us to use light. They didn't have an objection. They didn't break or pour the oil out. They wanted to go ahead, make the light, but don't use pure oil. So if God wouldn't make the miracle, then you would not have, they would have gotten their way because that meant that it's all about the physical. You're putting a physical light that has nothing to do with the spirit. It has nothing to do with holiness. It's just dark. You put on a light. You make it light. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't, it doesn't represent anything. So Hashem makes it, no, burn with pure oil. And then Hashem also says, you know, and it's also a message for us. There are certain parts in ourselves to which sometimes we make a mistake, sometimes we fail, sometimes we we defile ourselves. You know, there is a uh, no, very is different. Maybe sometimes our thoughts aren't pure. Maybe we think bad thoughts. Maybe we question sometimes. Maybe we have very emotionally. Maybe we're not always in love with God. Sometimes we're angry at God. Sometimes we we're disappointed. Sometimes we feel negative feelings. I mean, there's a lot of things. So we're our intellect and our emotional status not always is pure doesn't it? sometimes sometimes we lose it sometimes it doesn't appear however there's a little jug of oil that's the neshama the deep part in ourselves that always remains that's hidden with the seal of the kohen gadol which basically means we have notwithstanding what we do what we don't do but we have something deep down in our neshama in our essence in which we are always pure. That's with the seal of the high priest. Hashem protects that for us. That no matter what we do on the outside, we still have that, 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 that little jug of oil. That's why you see, we have a lot of times people who live life totally away of religion. They have no, no connection whatsoever. But yet, it comes in a moment of, uh, of, of need or a moment when they're... All of a sudden, that little jug of oil comes out. It sort of revealed. You sort of touch that soul, that little bit of oil that is there. And when you do bring it out, the point of it is that that little oil is being enough to burn for eight days. So it's not just to go ahead and bring in the other, you know, the other things is, it's miraculous. It has the power to light and to shine and to keep on going on and on and on and on for eight days until you have to go go further. So it's not a matter of just bringing a miracle of bringing oil. It's a miracle that tells us about who we are, what that little uh, jug of oil that we all possess and the power and the potency that it has that, you know, it was hidden. People didn't even know that it was there. Because when they came into the so when you take a look, you come into a Jew, you take a look at him and you see what's going on. You don't see anything. You don't see his mind is no good, his heart is no good, his behavior is no good, he doesn't do anything. So at first, 
when you look at it, you don't see it. But you have to know that there is over there. You have to look for it. And they found. Finding means that it's what's not obvious. It wasn't right there you. You have to look for it, and then you found, and then you saw that there is actually the oil. And that's something which I guess the Rebbe taught us all the time. The way we have to look at another person, at every Jew, you know, don't look at what he looks now, that, um, you know, you see that maybe they're defiled, maybe they're doing things wrong, or don't look at them, because that's only what meets the eye, that's only on the superficial, the outer level. But if you are going to really look hard, and deep down you're actually going to see something beautiful, you're going to see that there is that little jug of oil. So, there was once a, um, um, before, the high hol- before the holidays, um, uh, before Yom Kippur actually, there's a tradition for people to uh, ask for lekach, honey cake. And, and there was be a big line by the Rebbe, and people would you know, uh, get, wait in line, each one would get like a piece of lekach, a piece of cake mm-hmm. from the Rebbe, and uh, get a blessing for the Rebbe. The Rebbe would say, you know, uh, good sweet year, you know. It was a blessing, and everybody, everybody got through, you know, you went through the line, you waited in line, and everybody got a little piece of honey cake, and, you know, everybody cared. So anyways, it was a time of some other chassid, because the Rebbe has recently passed away. They didn't have a Rebbe, and uh, it came before uh, the high holidays. They had also a tradition that before the holiday, they needed to get a blessing. A Rebbe had to bless them. They needed, they, they didn't feel... They can go through the year without getting a blessing, the Rebbe. But in the absence, they didn't have a Rebbe because the Rebbe passed away. Mm-hmm. It was, they didn't live that... What? 1950? Oh, no, 19... No, no. I'm not talking about the Rebbe. I'm not talking about... I'm talking about another chassid. This is during the lifetime of the Rebbe. Okay. But there was another chassid, another from another... Not Chabad. Oh. From, another, from another community. Their Rebbe passed away. But they, they never went to Chabad. They weren't really Chabad, but they had a problem because they didn't have a Rebbe to go to before the Yom Tov. They didn't make it another Rebbe. So they didn't live that far from Brooklyn where the Rebbe was. And so they decided, you know, I need a Rebbe. I need somebody. I need a blessing. I'm not going to go into the holidays without getting a blessing. So they decided, I'm going to go visit the Lubavitcher Rebbe. The Lubavitcher Rebbe is giving up. And so he wants to go. Here there's a line over there. He gets into the line, the back of the line, probably about an hour or two till you get to the Rebbe. Stands in line. Okay, he's standing there. And while he's standing there, <laughs> next to him comes in another fellow, the guy with long ears up till his behind. <laughs> and all the tattoos all over his hands. And this guy is a chassid, you know, he's a, not, not a chabad chassid. He's not used to these kind of... Uh, and the guy looks like a, like a hippie from hippie land or, you know, like, where is it? You know, it's... Uh, with all kinds of rings and tattoos and everything. So... No piercing back. Okay, well, yeah. Yeah, well, well, so but anyways, but the, the, so he looks at him. He's standing next to him alive. He got it. He says, he says, what are you doing over here? He says, <laughs> he says, I came to get a blessing from my rabbi before the holiday. <laughs> he says, what? He says, your rabbi? Yes. <laughs> he says, if he's, if he's your rabbi, how could he be my rabbi? <laughs> you know, like. And they're, so they made a sort of, they were friends and, you know, they were talking and, and he, he stood in front of him and, you know, it was, 
I was there already. He wasn't going to leave. <laughs> you know, the other chassid wasn't going to leave already. He was there. And they made it through and became before the Rebbe. And the Rebbe gave, gives this, this young man, this other one, this, this hippie, the Rebbe gives him a big smile and gives him a piece of cake and the guy is happy and happy. And then he goes after him. And he, uh, the Rebbe says, and he's in line. And the Rebbe, I guess, you know, can read his... Uh, and, and the Rebbe asks him, I said, the Rebbe says to him, can you tell me, let me ask them, what does it say in the introduction of the book that your Rebbe published? Well, he was a chassid, but he, he didn't know what it said in the introduction. So, so he says, Rebbe, I'm sorry, I don't know what it says over there. You know. And the Rebbe told him that over there in the introduction, he brings down that there was um, uh, a great rabbi who had tremendous in the past, which was the grandfather of this, of this, of his rebbe, the great grandfather, and I forget the names, but he had, he had great uh, privileges above. After he passed away, they they were uh, made special place for him. And what was his question? Is what was his greatness? You know, what was why was he a special? So they said that he studied more Torah than any of the other rabbis. Why was he special? They said, no, he studied a lot of Torah, but didn't study more than anybody else. Did he pray more than everybody else? No, no, he didn't. No, also, no he prayed a lot, but, but, but did he give more tzedakah, more charity than anybody else? No, also no. He do more mitzvahs? No, everything they went through it wasn't. So why is he special? He says the reason he's special is because he brought back God's children. He brought them back home because this rabbi would work and bring in some of the lost souls. He'd bring them back. He says, there's no greater pleasure to a father when you bring back their lost children, when you bring them back home. That is the greatest word. So the Rebbe was sort of reading his mind, and he understood that he was having a hard time with this other guy there with the tattoos. And the Rebbe did what he could to bring every, every Jewish person home because the Rebbe realized and you know, taught us that that little jug of oil that we all possess, that's really there. That cannot become defiled, never does become defiled. So, you know, you can put tattoos on the outside, you can put uh, rings, you can do all kinds of stuff, and, and more. But you cannot touch that little jug of oil, that stays there. And if we can sort of reach and touch and find that, find it, you know, to find it is discover it and have the person discover their own self. So then if you can discover it, so then you'll actually uh, begin to shine. You'll actually begin to light and begin to uh, illuminate. So not only will you um, yourself be saved, but then you become actually part of the Rebbe's vision. If you know something, you go teach somebody else who knows less than you do. And that's how today we have hundreds and hundreds and thousands of thousands of young people who joined the forces of trying to make a difference in the world, you know, to help other people find their way back, to help other people discover that jug of oil. So those people who discovered their own jug of oils and somebody was there for them and didn't give up on them, now they've become in turn the people that are going out and finding other peoples and discovering them. And we hope that, you know, all these oil that we discover uh, will be able to actually light the uh, real menorah because the Time is ripe for Mashiach to come, and so we can build the base Hamikdash. And at that time, we'll take all of our jugs of oils and we'll light the menorah, and we'll uh, be able to enjoy 
the real presence of godliness and we hope this happens so having said this we're going to go and try to light the menorah and then, no? What? Ah, <laughs> 
בימים בזמן הזה, בזמן הזה, על ידי כויאנך הקדושים, 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 Once a story told about um, this fellow who was uh, struggling for his livelihood, but for Esrog he went and he bought a, a very expensive Esrog. And he sold his grandfather's tefillin, which was very dear, and he brought home his beautiful Esrog, and his wife, who uh, was always asking him to help her make life a little easier, they need shoes for the children, they need clothing, and here he goes and spends the money. Hey, where'd you get the money from? So he says, you know, I got, uh, she pressed it, where'd you get the money from? I sold it for him. You went and sold it film for the Ashrug, you're going to use it for, for six days, for seven days, and we don't have any food to eat, we don't have uh, clothing. What did you do? She got angry, she threw, she threw the Ashrug down. And she broke the pitum, but she ruined the Ashrug. And then he didn't get so and then he went after that he goes and he starts singing a great song and he goes to his wife and he goes and he goes starts singing and dancing so they thought maybe you know something happened wrong what happens you know he lost it so he explained later on that of course it was a big mysterious nefesh to go ahead and buy the beautiful asteroid but he said, right now, he says, the mitzvah that came to his hand is to control himself and not to get angry. <laughs> because, wow. because, so he says, he's so happy that he was able to uh, sort of control himself and not lose it and become angry 
that, that this was the biggest mitzvah, the bigger mitzvah than his than oh, his than wow. his diasric. He's later on saw his grandfather in his dream. His grandfather told him the second act is greater than the first act. In other words, the fact that you control yourself, you didn't get angry. Yeah, that is greater than even spending all this money for the. Uh, so I'm saying, not getting angry for turning over your head. <laughs> no, I didn't want to get angry.